are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergatinos. We are currently in the second volume of the text, and uh, we are on page 41. If you're just joining us, and we are picking up with number nine at the very bottom of the page. And as I just mentioned, we are finishing up our discussion of humility and in particular, uh, a kind of self-abasement, a willingness to let go of self-image in our own eyes and the eyes of others. And, uh, And so the final couple of stories here that we are being presented with uh, that are quite interesting, and I'm sure will give rise to a good amount of thought. So number nine, he further related the following about a certain elder. This elder, he said, was very gentle, and on account of his virtue and the many miracles which he had performed, he was respected by everyone in the region where he lived. Now, once a certain brother who lived very near him and whom the elder had on many occasions served as his guide to God, out of satanic influence, spoke insultingly of him in front of a group of others who happened to be with the elder. The elder simply stopped and, taking care for his words, said to him, Brother, the grace of God is in your words. And though the brother spewed forth more insults, saying, Yes, you miserable wretch and sluggard, you you say all of this to show how gentle you are. The elder replied, Indeed, brother, all that you say is true. Afterwards, one of the people who was present during the episode said to the elder, Monk, were you really not upset at this? No, the elder answered, I felt that way in my soul, as though Christ were protecting me. In fact, one should be thankful to those who involve him in such episodes, as I often say, and should consider them, whether one feels unmoved or spiteful, physicians who are curing the wounds of his soul and who make it easier for him to gain the kingdom of heaven. So this, we heard a lot about this last week, that many of the monks came to see these kind of interactions as a physician working upon them, that they, rather than experiencing them as bitter uh, or becoming spiteful, uh, they began to see them as curative, 
that it brought them to uh, a greater freedom and uh, as well as intimacy with Christ. Uh, as we've talked about, as one feels oneself falling into this abyss of humility, of being humbled over and over again by the realities of life and sometimes by others, that at the same time one is falling into the abyss of love, is drawing closer to Christ and being uh, exalted, lifted up by him, the holy innocent one. Uh, we are drawn closer to uh, even when we are uh, being abased by another, and especially when we are. And uh, again, granted, this is a very difficult thing uh, to see as, as well as to embrace, uh, not to respond in kind. And uh, the interesting little phrase here that I caught in reading it was that he stopped and taking care for his words, that uh, even being the holy elder that he was, you know, ha had to pause in his mind and heart and to watch over what he was saying so that his response was truly reflective of what uh, he believed and what he uh, experienced uh, through this encounter. And um, so it's interesting, a satanic influence that even uh, one who had been under his charge turns against him. And so this in particular had to be a very painful uh, kind of experience that one who he loved and had cared for had begun to attack him and attack him viciously. And yet he was able to respond to him with a kind of tenderness. Number 10. An elder said, if we are children of the holy apostles, as the apostle Paul proclaims and tells us, for in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel, then we are obligated as children to imitate our parents. And just as the apostles experienced joy when they were beaten and remained unperturbed when they were slandered, since it was said by Gentile and Jew alike that they were turning the world upside down with their magic and potions, so should we also feel in similar circumstances. The apostles and all of these and like things not only were not grieved, but on the contrary, were taken with joy. So it is that they said with satisfaction, being reviled, we bless, being defamed, we entreat, and other things. And this was all written that we might also imitate them. Therefore, when we suffer such things and hear bitter words, we should be joyful as though we have gained a treasure and share in the trials and tribulations of the holy apostles and martyrs. And we should await yet greater things, showing that we are their true kinsmen and gaining even more notably by becoming partakers of the unending glory of the heavens. So, uh, kinsmen of the apostles and the martyrs, uh, not shedding our blood, but uh, nonetheless uh, being pierced through by the words 
uh, of others and uh, finding joy in this for this very reason that we are being conformed to our uh, fathers and mothers in the faith that we are imitating them and uh, imitating them in particular in the joy that they find in the treasure that they have come to possess or that they have discovered. And uh, I think this is how we are, are meant to understand these kinds of experiences, that they are the pearl of great price or the treasure hidden in the field for us. As hard as that is to imagine, and as much as that turns our world on its head, uh, to experience oneself as being conformed to Christ in his cross and his passion and being conformed to the apostles and uh, and the martyrs, we, we find ourselves in great company. And it's for this reason alone that they could experience such great joy over it, that their experience of that communion had become so deep that they could experience it only as being enriched by then sharing in common with the apostles and martyrs their suffering for Christ. Again, you know, these are our words and stories that we've heard many, you know, many times before in the Gospels and in the letters of Paul and the Acts of the Apostles. And uh, it's one thing to hear them. It's another thing to embrace them and to, to seek to live them out. And, um, and to not only that, but to experience a kind of joy. And so these are things that have to be prayed for. Uh, remember in John last week, he makes the distinction between uh, natural virtue and spiritual uh, and supernatural virtue. And, and some of those included would be this kind of love that this is not something by natural virtue that we rise to, uh, this love of enemy or one who uh, attacks us, that this is only something by the grace of God that we can attain. Number 11. Once a brother was presented to Abba Anthony, when Anthony approached him, he tested him to see if he could endure attacks against his honor. And when he understood that he could not endure them, the Abba said, you resemble a village, which while all decorated on the outside, behind the scenes is being plundered by thieves. Uh, a stinging, uh, kind of rebu rebuke from St. Anthony the Great, that you uh, appear to be a village nicely decorated. And in many ways, I think that uh, as members of the church and the church as a whole, uh, our view of success or uh, our, our, our view of even service can betray this kind of external uh, appearance of faith and but lack of depth and uh, in the east it was the Sunday of the last judgment and the gospel is from Matthew 
And um, it was a striking uh, gospel, of course. And But I came across a little quote from Erasmo Maricacus. Remember I've mentioned him here before. He's a great biblical scholar. If you ever have the opportunity, he's written a four-volume commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. And there's something extraordinary about it. It's not your typical modern commentary. It's it's a mix of great scholarship, but depth of prayer that makes it reminiscent of reading the fathers. And uh, he, he talks a lot about this kind of cultural form of Christianity that we've become uh, so immersed in uh, that the fundamental truth of the gospel uh, begins to elude us. And uh, I just want to share with you just a few of his thoughts. I won't go through the whole quote with you, but it sort of brings home uh, what uh, St. Anthony said to this uh, other elder here. Uh, certain cultural forms of Christianity have inured us to a fundamental truth of the gospel, namely that evangelists, preachers of the good news in all stripes, must become in every way as socially poor, downtrodden, and persecuted as the word they proclaim became during his historical existence in our world. This is why the whole notion of success is extremely questionable when applied to the church and her members. We can never lose sight of the truth that Jesus succeeded in redeeming the world only through the cross. This is why all forms of worldly triumphalism, power, riches, influence, comfortable establishment, and self-congratulation are an abomination when practiced by Christians in the name of Christ. Extraordinary, isn't it? It's an abomination when we are seeking to bear witness to the gospel uh, in a way that is so uh, unlike what we see in the life of Christ. And uh, just his last little paragraph here is directed in particular to priests, and it, I found it uh, especially stinging. He says, how many of us would ever unreflectedly predicate the attributes poor, hungry, naked of the Church of Christ as such, or of her clergy, teachers, and leaders? That is why it comes as a great shock to us, and indeed, why at first we find it almost incomprehensible for Jesus to take it for granted that our own brothers and his intimate apostles who live according to his own heart are necessarily going to be the least members of a self-serving society. It is the shepherds themselves who ought to be the neediest charity cases and not the vagrants knocking at the rectory door. It is the very servants of Christ, the proclaimers of the gospel, who should be the, the greatest charity case. It's not those who we condescend to serve uh, from a place of abundance so often. And in this sense, find ourselves separated uh, uh, on 
so many different levels, emotionally, certainly, experientially, but spiritually, from those that, that we serve. And so I think this is Mayor Caucus's point. Uh, how do we engage you know, the poorest of the poor? And how do we reflect the love of Christ and the humility of Christ to the world when we are constantly see, seeking to be seen and to see our work, even of, of evangelization, as successful, but successful in worldly terms, what we've accomplished, what we've built. And so often that creates a wall between ourselves and others. And what you gain, I think, in reading these stories is that that wall becomes shattered. Uh, that these monks did not see themselves as saints among sinners. They saw themselves as having a deep poverty and in need of God's mercy as anyone. And that if they are criticized, you remember the saying from last week, if all the tongues in the world spoke at once against me, that they would not even scratch the surface of the, 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 the depth and the nature of my sin. And, uh, and so these readings that we look at or the writings such as Maricacus, uh really do strike home and it's challenging us i think to uh embrace again uh an unvarnished gospel to allow to be something that shakes up our our world our internal world and our perception of of reality and this requires uh, you know a deep reading and prayerful reading and one that allows us to be challenged in ways that perhaps we are uncomfortable. So our final little story from this hypothesis. It was said of a certain elder who was living in the hinterland that he lived in ascetic quietude. He was served by a layman who had a son. It so happened that the layman's son became ill and the layman entreated the elder to go and pray over his ill son. Thereupon, the elder left his cell together with the layman. Now, the layman ran ahead and went to his house. He quickly gathered his relatives and neighbors and said to them, come, let us go to meet the anchorite. Immediately, a great number of people came running. As soon as the elder saw them coming from a distance with their lamps, he understood what was happening. So he took off his clothes and started washing them in the river, standing stark naked. When the layman who served him saw him thus, he was humiliated. He asked the people to return to their homes, since the elder, as he told them, has lost his mind. Approaching the elder, he said, Why, Abba, did you do this, causing scandal to everyone? Because everyone who saw you said, the elder is demonized. To this, the Abba replied, and that is just what I wanted to hear. So on one level, the elder could see what was taking place there, that 
the layman was drawing him out of the quietude of his prayer, out of his hermitage, uh, not only because of the illness of his son, but in a, in a sense to parade him, to manifest, as it were, to others, the holiness of this anchorite that he knew. And so he could see people coming out, perhaps with curiosity, and what could uh, develop into uh, a kind of praise of him, especially if he were to bring healing to this young young man. And so he purposely uh, makes himself look not only <laughs> ridiculous, but out of his mind. He strips himself naked and starts washing his clothes in the river uh, to the point that they, they think he's overcome by a demon. And to, to which he says, this is exactly what I wanted. I want have people to have no illusions about me as miracle workers, as miracle worker, that it is God and his grace that transforms the brokenness of this world. And so to trot me out as though I am responsible for this because I've led this penitential life is to create in the minds of others in a kind of delusion that he knows that he's entered into the life as, as penance. He's entered a penitential life and not to be one then who's praised in the, the sight of others. Andrew Adams White writes, what was the name of the commentary uh, on, it's on St. Matthew, uh, and it's uh, just called the commentary on Matthew by Erasmo. Let me see if I get this, Miracathis. That's it there, Fire of Mercy, Heart of the Word. Thank you, Adam Page. And uh, just extraordinary. And they're even available on Kindle, too. And uh, it's one could use them as for Lexio. They're just that extraordinary. So th th those will show up on uh, the podcast, too, in the notes. So if you don't happen to get it written down here tonight, or if there are people who are listening, uh, just look down to the notes to find the title. Okay. So this brings us to the end of that hypothesis, and certainly with an extraordinary final story that one would prefer to be seen in the eyes of others uh, as demonized, because that is closer to the truth in light of how of what goes on within the, the human heart. I think it's Jeremiah that says the human heart is a treacherous thing. And so it can be, uh, as it's touched by sin. And uh, the only path for healing is, is that of humility. And so these monks were willing to embrace that humility in its steps. Any final comments before we move on to the next hypothesis on idleness, the dangers of idleness? Okay, so we are on page 45, for those who may have joined a little bit late. Hypothesis number three, 
that one should not be idle, but undertake physical labor too, and that idleness is the cause of many ills. From Palladius. Now, Palladius, there's a wonderful little volume out uh, that um, he, where he puts together stories of the desert lives of the desert fathers, just so you know, and it's a great resource. Is said that as he was approaching death, the Holy Pambo said to the Holy Fathers who were present, from the time that I came to this desert and constructed my cell and settled here, I spent not a single day without doing my handiwork, nor do I recall ever eating bread given to me by someone else. So already here in this first story, we find uh, Pambo saying that you know, there was never a day that he allowed himself to fall into a kind of idleness, that they aren't existing in this kind of romanticized state of ecstasy, uh, of prayer, uh, but this kind of balance of, of work and prayer which keeps the mind, mind and heart focused upon God, but also allows one to provide for oneself and uh, to humble oneself in body through and mind through one's physical labors. And so he did his handiwork, but also provided for his own food on a daily basis as well throughout the course of his entire time there. Uh, from the same author, it, I was at one time in Galatia, where I stayed for some time with his grace, Bishop Philoromos, an extremely ascetic and very patient man. St. Gregory the Great was very taken by him, gratified as he was by the man's austerity and the care which he showed in his work. Even now, at 80 years of age, he was has not put aside his pen or his calligraphy book. This blessed man said, from the time that I was baptized to this very hour, I have never eaten bread that was given to me by another person. Instead, from what I make toiling at my handiwork, I give 20 coins to the lepers. He went by foot to, to venerate the tombs of the apostles in Rome, Alexandria, and Jerusalem. He made this journey twice, paying his own expenses in order to venerate the saints and receive their blessings. He also told us this for our benefit. I cannot recall ever having taken my mind off of God. That's the final statement there is the extraordinary one. And we, I think, begin to get a fuller picture of avoiding idleness that the work was not only for work's sake, but it was to maintain uh, a kind of clarity of focus and remembrance of God, that one would take up those labors, not abstracted from God, but as a, an obedience uh, that directed them towards him. And so often it was manual labor of some sort, uh, but again, it wasn't to uh, provide themselves with an abundance or a life of ease, but rather to keep the, the mind from drifting to things that might pull a person away 
from God. And it's an interesting way of looking at one's labors, uh, that there can be certain kinds of labor where that is very difficult. And so we have to create a habit of virtue, a habit of mind, we are where we are making this connection between the work that we are doing and the remembrance of God. That we, again, don't allow ourselves to become so abstracted in what we're doing or allow to take on that much importance for us that it creates an anxiety that leads us to marginalize God uh, in our own minds and hearts. And, you know, again, we often will praise a kind of busyness. And, uh, and we have to be careful about that because I, avoiding idleness and busyness is, is not the same thing. That busyness in and of itself can pull us away from God too. And it can be because we are looking for something in this world to provide us with uh, a sense of identity, purpose, value, or to acquire ease or security in living. And this is not what the monks are talking about. On Mount Nitria, there is a large church near it, and near it, a guest house was built. In this guest house, hospitality was offered throughout the year to any stranger who wished to stay close to the monks. And no one was evicted if he did not wish to leave on his own. Guests were allowed to stay for one week without working. Afterwards, however, they were assigned to work, whether in the garden, the bakery, or the kitchen, or were given books to study. And they were not permitted to interact with anyone until the sixth hour. And all of them wove linen cloth by hand so as not to be a burden on anyone. So interesting, isn't it, that uh, no one would ever be evicted from a monastery. The one, one of the things that they are known for is this radical kind of hospitality to receive anyone coming to be renewed and in, in, in spirit. And to find in this place of prayer, a place of solace, and so to be embraced joyfully. But even they, after a week, would be expected to, to do work so that they would not become idle and, uh, and make their time there of less worth, but also be perhaps an object of distraction to others. They were not to communicate before the sixth hour, we are told. And, uh, and so they were to maintain uh, the great silence in the, the monasteries, but then also were given specific works, obediences within the monasteries as well as to keep them focused. So in some way they would earn the, their keep while they were there as well as avoid this idleness. Michael Hinckley writes, can't over-busyness, lack of focus, be acedia? Yes, I think potentially so, that, you know, when we lose our focus upon God or our sense of the value of the ascetic labors, one can escape into a whole host of things. And one of these things could be 
a kind of over-busyness, a focus upon the things of this world or worldly work, um, that one can easily become bored uh, in the spiritual life. And so rather than remaining in the silence or in those spiritual labors, want to uh, distract the mind. Letter B on page 46. Saint Euthemius the Great told his disciples that those who forsake the world and worldly things must take care to be obedient and humble, not to follow their own wills, and to endure at all times any weariness that might arise from their handiwork and labors. And the latter, above all, if one is young, and is thus strongly confronted by fleshly assaults on account of his age. Now, aside from great caution, it is needful beyond this for one to exhaust his body with great hardships so as to yield easily to what is sensible and to extinguish little by little the flame of youth and thus to imitate the Apostle Paul while at the same time applying his precepts not simply avoiding the sin of inactivity, inactivity which the idler, idler is judged unworthy of his very food, because he says, if anyone would not work, neither should he eat, but acquiring the same hands as Paul. These hands, he says, have ministered unto my necessities and those of them that were with me. For it is most unseemly that while laymen not only feed themselves by their work and as well their wives, their children, and their whole household, and pay their yearly taxes, but also offer to God the first fruits of their labors, giving alms in accordance with their ability, we should not be able to share in common with others the fruit of our work. So not only is this work to prevent us from falling into idleness. Uh, but it also helps, especially those who are young, to humble the body and its particular appetites. So to exhaust the body, to work hard, uh, is to humble the body and in some way uh, to mitigate the intensity of some of the bodily appetites. Uh, but it also enables a person uh, to engage in the service of others, that one can provide uh, for others out of their work and also not be a burden to others by providing for oneself, as Paul teaches. And, you know, in the West, I think we have had the privilege of clergy being able to be supported uh, by their parishes and uh, be able to dedicate themselves fully to that labor. Uh, but, you know, that's something that can be easily be abused or a person can fall into laziness or take that for granted. Uh, those times might be coming to an end. Uh, I know certainly within the Eastern uh, rites that the, the number of people in the parishes is shrinking so quickly that that might no longer be a possibility. 
that what is described here might become the necessity in the West, even where we have sort of known a kind of a, an abundance that has not required that. But, you know, maybe this teaching here tells us something important that uh, spiritually there is something that it allows us to do, which is to not be a burden to others, but also to provide for others out of our, our uh, own handiwork. From the life of St. Savas. When the great father Savas was yet a young man and was living in the monastery of Flavinae, his hands were never idle. Whenever they were not lifted up towards God, then noetic prayer was his labor. Out of fear that, at even the slightest interruption in mental concentration, the enemy might secretly distract him and make his appearance. Thus, for him, virtue was lighter than a feather, and he served all the brotherhood, numbering about 70 monks, with obedience, humility, and all of the other evangelical accomplishments. Later, having departed from there at the will of the superior, who gave him a blessing to leave, he went to Jerusalem, where he met St. Euthymius the Great, who, was, uh, who, as, who, as was his custom, was present at the gathering of the monks. Savas, falling at his feet, tearfully begged, entreated, and implored the saint that he might also become one of his rational sheep and be shepherded by him along with the other monks. So, you know, here was one of the, the, the holiest of the, these early saints and still revered uh, to this day and engaged in his labors in such a way to protect this kind of noetic prayer, this prayer that arises out of purity of heart, where there is no impediment uh, that enters into the heart that distracts one from God. And he was able to also find that in the way that he worked and was able to maintain what he had in his prayer, in his labors as well. Uh, so even in serving 70 monks and living in obedience, he was able to maintain this kind of constancy of prayer and remembrance of God, which tells us something very important that, you know, our work uh, is not something that necessarily has to be an obstacle to this constant communion with God in prayer, that the heart can be formed so deeply that whether one is standing with upstretched arms in prayer or one is engaged in the work of one's hands, the heart still belongs to God and is directed toward God. This is what we are seeking to form within the mind and the heart. And so again, it tells us something about the, the nature of our work and our avoidance of idleness. Again, it's not simply busyness, but it had formed his heart so deeply that even when he uh, is sent away to Jerusalem. He, he begs the abbot there that he might remain in that position almost of a, of a novice. 
that despite his many years at that point in the monastic life, that the life of obedience and hard work and serving others were so important for his sanctity that he did not want to give it up. So he begs the, the superior to allow him to have the position of all the other monks. St. Euthemius the Great, who was a superb instructor of, to his sheep, having furthermore acquired experience over the years from their struggles, did not allow him to reside with the others in the monastery. For he saw that St. Savas was still young and thought that perhaps his desire was just the result of some temporary impetuosity and lacked the seriousness of deep reflection. Thus he allowed him to participate in the whole monastic life, exactly as it is prescribed, but outside the monastery. But even after this period of testing, he said, my child, it is not seemly because of your age that you should live within the monastery. This is neither beneficial to the monastery, nor does it do you any good. But if you wish to heed my advice, place yourself in submission to Abba Theotispos, to whom I am, of course, very close in the institution just below us, and you will prosper greatly. So the, the superior is worried because of his youth, that despite the sanctity that he has gained and being sent to Jerusalem, that the abbot is wary that he's, if he's drawn into the monastic community, that his youth will lead uh, to dissipation of one form or another. And so wants him to live outside of the monastery. In fact, he ends up sending him, even after a period of time, to a different monastery to be under obedience to another superior who he feels will be able to, to work with him and form him in a deeper fashion. And it's interesting, you know, not he never complains about this and embraces it all as part of the providence of God. And so doesn't question his superiors in any of these, these things. And so we are told the Blessed Savas was obedient to all of this because aside from other things, he had learned obedience. Moreover, he promised with great eagerness to fulfill what St. Euthemius had instructed him to do. For this is what I want, Savas answered, and it is for this reason that I took refuge with you that I might, by your aid, be saved. St. Euthemius thus sent him to the blessed Theotiscos and ordered that the latter, the, the latter to look after him well. Because, he said, I have seen that the grace of the Spirit is pouring out over Savas richly, and that before a great period of time shall pass, the whole universe will be overwhelmed by his fame. This, of course, eventually happened in fulfillment of St. Euthemius, the Great's prediction. So there's something there that he sees in the young man that requires that he be formed in such a way so that what is coming down the road does not lead him to destruction. So this divine Savas becoming a disciple of Blessed Theotiscos gave himself over with complete sincerity to God and was overcome wholly by divine desire. 
And knowing that he was of a dull composition that is made up of soul and body, he set forth to double his asceticism, sometimes racking the body, sometimes the soul. Thus he passed his day with bodily labors, while at night he kept vigil with prayers. Sometimes he would haul water, and at other times he would carry wood. And in this way, in his assiduity, he surpassed all the others, whatever their obedience. For he was distinguished for his gallantry of soul, and he was also noble of body and truly robust. On his own, he undertook other obediences. In fact, he assumed the care of the mules. Despite this, he went before everyone else to the gatherings in the church and left last eagerly taking part in the divine liturgy. And by all these things, he added to his life as divine capital, obedience and self-control. For this reason, his spiritual state invited amazement from the vast array of monastics that at such a young age, he was adorned with the crown of the virtues and perfection. So, you know, great caution is shown in his regard, partly because of the sanctity that they were seeing in him. Uh, but he falls under the guidance of very wise shepherds who seek to continue to form him in, in such a way uh, that he's able to flourish in all the virtues, obedience and humility uh, and self-control, uh, as while also being disciplined in all these other different parts of his life. Uh, and so it becomes a great saint because of it. And so we re are beginning here early on in this hypothesis to uh, gain sight of a picture that is being painted for us, that avoidance of idleness, again, is not just hard work, that uh, there are fruits that arise out of this, uh, obedience, self-control, uh, discipline of every sort, the humbling of mind and, and body. And so monks did not tend to see anything as abstracted from God. And that included their daily works, no, no matter how simple they might be, including, as we see, taking care of the, the monastery's mule. You know, that this would even be something that would be embraced with great joy, even though a humble task. Saint Lucianos the Great, even when he was still young, leaned towards the monastic life. Thus very early on, he turned away from all of the fleshly pleasures and gave himself over to fasting and unceasing prayer. In this way, within a short time, he succeeded in rendering his flesh such that it did not trouble him. He busied himself with Tachography, that is stenography, 
And whatever he earned from his work, this work, he used for his food and for alms for the poor. For he thought it wrong if he tasted his own food without the poor first taking their part out of what he had earned. So, again, this emphasis on the hard work, not only leading to charity, but helping those who are young avoid uh, the sins that arise out of idleness. Uh, Philip Neary, I think, uh, mentioned, would at least make the, the men sweep out the rooms of the, the oratory uh, so that they were never sitting around idle, that their hands would always be engaged in some, some work. Uh, it's often said, you know, the idle, idle hands, what is the, the devil's handiwork, uh, that we are easily drawn in uh, to the, the things of the flesh or distracted when we are not engaging our mind and body in a specific way that leads toward God. And so work is not just work. Uh, the work takes on a kind of meaning for us uh, that shapes the mind and the heart as uh, powerfully in some ways as our prayer does as well. That it is, it becomes a form of prayer for us, especially when it's taken up in obedience. That there's a sacrifice of oneself being offered to God or to others as we see through charity. Any thoughts or comments on anything that we've read so far? Yes, Adam. I'm just curious about the practice of vigils. Like, what was that like for the Desert Fathers, and how would that be applied in modern terms for lay people, for instance? I just get the the sense that some of these fellows were not sleeping that much. Right. Well, you're right. They they weren't, and uh, and were uh, very disciplined in regards to to sleep. But, you know, I think when we think about our modern times, that people will extend the workday. Uh, you know, it's no longer the eight-hour workday, you know, with, and then you add a long commute. And so sometimes people are up the crack of dawn, driving a couple hours. I've heard of people, you know, who work in New York City who live have to live out what someplace, you know, where they could afford it. And so we'll travel a couple hours into work and then work a long day and then make that commute all the way back. And then people often will get absorbed then in other things, a kind of busyness about the things of this world, filling their life with one thing after another, either uh, things that would be, you know, hobbies or entertainment, distractions. And so more and more, you know, uh, they're given over to a labor, but that is not humbling them or dedicated to God or dedicated to the service of the poor or giving alms to the poor. 
and uh, and certainly their time uh, is not being given over to prayer either. The people will be willing to burn the midnight oil, as it were, uh, if they're students, you know, studying, uh, but or if they work in the world to get up earlier and earlier to to go to the gym first uh, before going to to work, and so often. People within the world will go with very little sleep. And again, that will be admired. That busyness will be admired. And that hard work will be held up as a, a virtue. But uh, is it virtuous in the eyes of God? And is it formative of the heart in such a way that it, it draws a person closer to God? So uh, the monks were willing to humble the body through vigils, through rising at night to pray. Uh, but this is a different kind of work. There's something about vigils that is renewing of mind and body uh, that th they would often say that one hour of prayer is like three hours of sleep. And, uh, and I don't think, again, this was just hagiography or just a pious thought. I think there is something that is restorative about being immersed in the love of Christ. And of course, one cannot embrace this indiscriminately and does it under guidance and under obedience uh, so as not to harm oneself physically. But over the course of time, uh, they they could have a, a life that is, was completely focused upon God. And night was seen as a time uh, of great prayer because of the stillness and silence of the world around them and also of the humbling of the mind uh, as well, that the, the thoughts begin to slow down and still throughout the course of the night as well so that they would often lament. I think it was Anthony that lamented, you know, uh, becoming aware that the, the night had passed when the morning sun hit his face. And uh, so lamenting the rise of the sun because it meant that time of deep prayer had passed. And so, you know, a lot of this, again, challenges our perception of reality and how we engage in it, that we often uh, don't uh, question, uh, as we've talked about with fasting. Now, the whole inter intermittent fasting, people engaging in that for physical health. And we don't question, you know, athletes, you know, modifying their diet and scholars and musicians, everybody, you know, spending this enormous amount of time and labor in their own a kind of asceticism. But all of a sudden, when we think of the asceticism of the spiritual life that involves the remembrance of God, we think impossible. And, uh, and part of that, the reason for that is that we often don't look to the saints, uh, those who have walked the path before us and have this experience of what this discipline, what this asceticism, what this focus upon work and the kind of work and avoidance of idleness meant for them and their relationship with God 
and how they live their life in this world. And I think our vision of things have become has become more and more secularized. And so much of our work is done for the sake of security and providing for all these things that, you know, again, society has set up as a fundamental need for us. And, you know, guys who are running off to the desert probably weren't worried about a pension or, you know, putting together an IRA or health insurance, you know, which is a big thing for us, you know, and, you know, it's so we've assumed all of these uh, burdens of modern life or conveniences of modern life, but that they have come, they often come at a cost. And so I think for us, when we read these things, we have to at least think about how does one simplify their life in order to make some measure of this possible and trust that God will guide and direct the person into the spiritual life uh, uh, and direct a person to the asceticism in the measure that he desires from them and give them the grace to embrace it and uh but asceticism has really fallen out of the christian vocabulary as well as the immersion in the, the teachings of the fathers and so this is what we have to recapture for us not only through reading but through through practice and vigils wouldn't be the first thing certainly that i would counsel someone to do who was, as it were, a novice within the spiritual life. You know, I, I, I think there would be other things there that I would put forward for them. Okay. All right, well, that brings us pretty close to 8.30. And so before going on to the DrontCon, I think it might be good for us just to pause there. A lot to think about. But again, you know, hold in your mind that this idea that avoiding idleness really is speaking, it's speaking about our life as a whole that is caught up with this vision of the human person that we've been reading about now for the last couple of years. And now, now it's just touching about how we look upon work itself. Okay. So we'll stop there. Won't we close as always with, our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.